I want to take an opportunity to welcome you all to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, and I generally work on issues that have to do with poverty and inequality and other areas of domestic economic policy. Uh, and today we've got a rare occurrence here at Cato, a double book forum, if you will. Uh, we do a lot of book forums here, but, uh, but rarely do we have two such distinguished authors uh, dealing with books both released on the same topic and at roughly the same time. So it's uh, sort of serendipity that we, uh, that we get you both here today. Uh, we're talking uh, about the universal basic income, uh, which is the idea that rather than the current multiplicity of social welfare programs that we currently have, that that somehow be supplemented or replaced with cash transfers. Uh, that are not tied to specific requirements that are simply uh, people get a check uh, from the government uh, rather than the traditional set of, well, we have health care benefits and housing benefits and cash benefits and food benefits and things of that nature. This is a growing topic of conversation on both the left and right and among libertarians as well. Uh, there's a general acknowledgment that the workforce is changing and work possibilities are changing, and at the same time that the existing social welfare structure is struggling in many ways, and the question is what innovative solutions can be found to deal with these issues. Today we are very lucky to have two extremely distinguished authors with these new books on the subject uh, with us today. Uh, first up will be Charles Murray, who almost certainly needs no introduction, though he is the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Insti Enterprise Institute. Uh, he is the author of so many hugely influential books. Uh, in fact, if you're looking to sort of libertarianism and public policy, uh, it's hard to find anybody who's had as much influence over the last uh, 40 or 50 years than, than Charles. Uh, he, of course, is the author of the famously of Losing Ground, uh, which provided the intellectual foundation for welfare reform. Uh, but he's the author of many other books as well, including What It Means to Be a Libertarian, uh, Real Education, Coming Apart, uh, which is another very influential book on, on the question of poverty and civil society. And uh, his most recent is re a reissue of uh, In Our Hands, uh, a plan to replace the welfare state in which he lays out his proposals for universal basic income. Uh, so we're thrilled to have him to talk about that. And he will be then be followed by Andy Stern, uh, who is the former head, uh, as many of you know, of the 2.2 million member Service Employees International Union. Uh, he's now uh, at uh, Columbia University. Uh, he is a frequent uh, author, a frequent lecturer, and he is the author of Raising the Floor, uh, How a Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream. Uh, this might be called the Strange Bedfellows Book Forum. Uh, at any rate, uh, we will hear from both of them. Uh, then we'll have a little conversation and try to include you in that conversation as well. So I look forward to, to your uh, participation a little bit later on. But let's start right off with, uh, with Charles. Thanks, Mike. 
Uh, I, I, it was a wonderful introduction. It was way too generous, but 40 or 50 years <laughs> that I've been influential. It's, I'm not that old. I'm, <laughs> Andy and I come at this uh, from somewhat different perspectives that I'm, I'm sure we'll make clear. I'm going to try to give you the libertarian case for universal basic income. I should probably also take the minute to sketch out the specifics of uh, the, the, the system I propose in the book. Essentially, it says that we replace the entire welfare state with the universal basic income, and that's one of the things Andy and I will be going back and forth on, I imagine. We replace it. And that's how we fund it, too. And be replace everything. I'm not just talking about welfare. I'm talking about all transfer payments, and that includes uh, Social Security. It also includes Medicaid and Medicare and uh, housing subsidies and corporate welfare and agricultural subsidies and all the rest. A transfer payment in which some Americans have money taken from them by the government and it's given to other individuals or groups, all of that goes. In its place is a monthly check deposited electronically to a known bank account, an important feature of it. Uh, and this amounts in my plan, uh, as updated this year, to $10,000 of disposable income. There's also $3,000 a year that is used for uh, medical care. Uh, we can get into that, but I think I'm going to put that aside in my opening remarks because let's just talk about the disposable income and assume medical care has been taken care of one way or another. The libertarian case for this can be made on just purely uh, grounds of uh, the lesser of the evils. That's the grounds that uh, Milton Friedman used for his negative income tax proposal. I would put the, this, uh, this part of the case as saying, look, there is no way that an advanced uh, democracy of the West is going to get rid of massive amounts of transfer payments. It's just not going to happen. Uh, a libertarian dream of uh, dismantling the welfare state is not in the cards. Let's strike a grand bargain with the left. And the grand bargain is that we will let you spend an awful lot of money on uh, transfer payments to help the disadvantaged. And uh, your part is that you give up the role of the state in trying to stage manage people's lives. That's why the book is called In Our Hands. In fact, there are a couple of other things that are really paramount in what I'm trying to get at in this plan. As I was saying to Andy before we came up here, there's not a snowball's chance in hell that the plan I propose is going to get enacted the way I want it to be enacted. So why, why am I describing it? Because there are a couple of things I think it accomplishes that are hugely important. One of them has to do with what I am increasingly convinced is the reality that faces us within a matter of decades, maybe not that many decades, maybe only 10 or 15 years, in which the numbers of jobs that disappear is so great that we have to start thinking in terms of an economy in which people can live satisfying lives with a combination of paid work, but not necessarily 40 hours a week uh, in the old-fashioned sense of that word. The response that I get, especially from libertarians, is you guys have been saying this since uh, the Luddites, that every technological advance is going to get rid of jobs, and every time you've been wrong, more jobs have been created, and to argue this time is different is a fool's game. This time is different. <laughs> and I think that Andy and I agree on this. 
It's not just that we are going to have driverless cars, probably in, in about 10 years, and it's not just that this all by itself is, what, 4 million jobs? Huge, huge number of jobs that disappear, good-paying jobs that disappear. We are going to be carving out millions of white-collar jobs because artificial intelligence, after years of being overhyped, has finally come of age, and it is now able to do all sorts of things that formerly were done by people, usually with college educations, pretty smart people who had to make uh, decisions that a computer couldn't make, and now the computer can do that. We can talk about those more specifically, but I think that unless we look ahead to that, we are going to be going down the wrong road. Jobs programs, retraining, all of these things that are provided by the typical um, you know, solutions to our, to our workforce problem just aren't going to work for reasons that are historically unprecedented. The, the second thing, and probably the main reason that I think enacting this would be not just necessary because of a variety of contingencies that are forcing themselves upon us, but a good thing in terms of the way the country functions is I think it has a chance of revitalizing American civil society. First, think of those people who have serious problems. So you have somebody who uh, is on the basic universal income. He gets his check every month, but he drinks it up. So it's 10 days to go to the end of the month. He's out of money. Well, he can't go to the government for help. He has to go to his girlfriend, his parents, his uh, children, his neighbors, the Salvation Army. He has to go somewhere and ask for help. There is, however, a major difference in the way that that person can, will interact with the people he asks for help. He is no longer a helpless victim who can't do anything. And that's what he's going to be told. Yeah, we aren't going to let you starve in the streets, uh, but it's time for you to get your act together. Because we know you've got a check coming in to just 10 days. And, and we, let's start to take steps to uh, make sure this doesn't happen again. One such interaction doesn't make much difference necessarily. Imagine a country in which millions of such interactions are taking uh, place constantly. That's one aspect. Deal because uh, Let me just say quickly, dealing with human needs is really tough. Uh, whether we're trying to do it through social service agencies now or whether we were trying to do it philanthropically now, it's very tough. My proposition is the, the only consistently effective way, and even then it's tough, is why, by people who are very close to the person in need. And right now we have shipped these responsibilities downtown in ways which undercut one of the great strengths of America's traditional society. The, the other thing that will happen, however, in revitalizing America's traditional society is that historically, as observers from Tocqueville on down, have said over and over, America has been extraordinary in the degree to which it responds to problems by creating associations through, through private, uh, non-governmental means. When the government got deeply involved in social welfare, the associations continued, the philanthropy continued, but it was diverted to other kinds of uh, arenas in which the government was not so active. Well, I think that the best thing we can do is to get uh, 
that kind of energy back into the civil society traditionally defined. And I think that it, it is also a way, you know, people talk about infrastructure and why aren't we building more infrastructure when obviously libertarians and, uh, and liberals alike can agree you do need bridges that don't fall down. Well, there's a parallel in civil society, and that is there are all sorts of needs that need to be tended to that don't necessarily qualify for paid work. Uh, the Murray family has a classic example of that. My wife, uh, who, well, she's a Yale PhD. She could get a job, you know, if she, if she uh, wanted to. Uh, she is really busy, and she doesn't get paid a cent for any of the things she does. Uh, but her day is busy all day long with half a dozen different useful organizations in which she's contributing her time and also her quite considerable talent. Well, multiply that by some millions of people who maybe now are in paid jobs, but they're not going to be sitting around the house watching video game, or watching TV and playing video games in, in the presence of... Uh, uh, a universal basic income. They're going to be busy just as they are now, but we're making it a lot easier for them to make that choice because of the universal basic income that is, in effect, subsidizing that kind of work. I promised uh, Andy that I would try to stay within 10 minutes because we have lots of back and forth we're going to do, so I will leave it there and we can pick up the loose ends, of which there are many, uh, later. Andy, oh, just, uh, just for that, just real quick, for folks who are following us on the live stream or via uh, C-SPAN, uh, if you want to get involved in this conversation, you can go to Twitter, and the uh, hashtag is hashtag CatoUBI. Now, Andy? So you may be wondering, how did the former president of America's largest union, who helped elect Barack Obama and helped successfully organized to get Obamacare, end up in the Hayek Auditorium with a Wi-Fi password of, give me liberty. <laughs> to discuss a subject with probably the world's first scholar on it in recent history, Charles Murray, who's now my fellow Luddite, apparently, um, about a subject I knew nothing about three years ago. If you'd asked me what universal basic income was, I wouldn't have known. So let me just explain how I got here. I spent 38 wonderful years working for the same organization. I'm a one-job-in-a-lifetime person, just like my father and my grandfather. My employer managed my career, my health care, my job, my pension. Um, and in 2010, probably at the point that many people would say I was at the most successful period of my life, I quit. I retired. Because despite all the work that I had done for the union and all the wonderful things I had done with a janitors and child care, home care, uh, nursing home workers that I was privileged to work with, uh, and all the good things that had happened at SEIU, the fact was inequality was higher than any time in history. Good jobs were disappearing. Uh, the future seemed to be very murky in terms of what it looked like for the American dream, and I really had no answers as to what to do. I could have worked harder, I could have rowed more, but steering seems like what you're supposed to do when you lead an organization, and I didn't know what direction to go. And so I spent a number of years, and I want to thank Michael Tanner specifically, because at a meeting I spent here uh, at Cato, because I interviewed lots of people like Michael and David Cody, the CEO of Honeywell, all who were part of my book, you know, he explained to me sort of libertarian philosophy in general, and more specifically about work, welfare, and universal basic income. And 
I began this journey. And I just want to give you my three conclusions for years of listening to people. One is, if you wanted to rename this country appropriately economically, you would name it the United States of Anxiety. You know, 21% of people, only 21% of people, despite the statistics to the contrary, think the economy is good or very good. 47% of all people don't have $400 in case of an emergency. And 58% of people say their kids will not do better than they did, that the American dream is no longer alive. And statistically, they are absolutely correct. That's not the America I love. It's not the America I think any of us want. And it made me think about, therefore, you know, what to do and what was happening. So what I learned was that in the market economy of the 20th century, when you said economic growth, it really was a shorthand for four different things occurring at the same time. GDP grew, productivity grew, wages grew, and jobs grew. We now know that in the end of the 20th century, wages fell off uh, that trade. So you could have productivity growth, GDP growth, job growth, but for 20 years, American workers' wages really didn't rise. And now what we don't really want to recognize is you could have economic growth and productivity growth, not only without wage growth, without job growth. We've had not one new net traditional full-time job since 2005. All the growth in the economy has been in uh, contingent, part-time, other forms of alternative work arrangements. We have the largest uh, number of children living in their homes, which has turned the American dream for parents into the American nightmare when your kid moves back <laughs> after you thought you had gotten away from them. We have the lowest labor force participation in history. Uh, we now have not employer-managed work lives, where one job in a lifetime economy, but kids like my son are expected to have nine to 12 jobs by the time they're 35. Jobs now are very complicated in terms of the gig economy and trying to figure out how you get the basic benefits like Social Security or disability insurance. And my summary of the, today's economy is not the GM, auto worker, steel economy of my generation, but really it's Facebook, who's the largest media content provider in the world, and it has no writers. It's Airbnb, the largest accommodation provider in the world. It owns no hotel rooms. You have Uber, the largest transportation company in the world. It has no cars. And you have Alibaba and Amazon, the largest retailers in the world. They have no inventory. That is the 21st century economy. These are the icons of today's economy. So my first thing was, this is not your father's or grandfather's or 20th century economy. The second thing I understand is now there is so much reputable research. And this is not my research. This is McKinsey, who says 45% of all tasks in America can be automated right now, 13% more with artificial intelligence. Oxford University, 47% of all jobs. Deloitte, 25% of all jobs in Europe. You have Pew, who did a study of 2,000 experts. Half of them predicted not only will there be automation be uh, taking away jobs, but it has a potential of creating a new amount of social unrest in our country. Uh, so all of a sudden, everywhere you look, Larry Summers says a quarter of American men will not be employed at any particular time in the next generation. We now see driverless cars, as Charles talked about, but think about driverless trucks. The largest job in 29 states, the second or third largest job in, in 15 more, is driving a truck. Auto, which is now owned by Uber, Convoy, which was started by Jeff Bezos, 
Driverless trucks are on the road right now at mining camps. A driverless trucks, four of them actually towed behind one truck driver, not towed, following behind one truck driver, just drove all the way across Europe from one end of the Europe to another. A private equity person who owns a significant amount of retail establishments was yelling at me the other day about, you know, don't your union members, because once you're a union leader, you supposedly represent every worker at every union. <laughs> don't your union members understand while they're fighting about their pensions, in five years I will not have a person in the truck that is taking goods from the warehouse to the retail stores. Largest job in 29 states, three and a half million people, five and a half million people support truck drivers and parts, auto repair. That's a decade away at most until that's possible. DOT's just in introduced the legislation. So now we have all this reputable research. And I think as a country, we really have two choices. We could say, what do those guys know? It's never happened before, and that's true. Or you can say, maybe this time is different, or maybe even it isn't different. We should remember that the transition from the uh, agricultural to the industrial economy was brutal. I mean, Charles Dickens, it was terrible time for a lot of people till we got to the other side. So first of all, we have a transition problem that has huge potential of hurting lots of our kids and grandkids in this country. And secondly, you know, we understand uh, that business and the military, who are thoughtful people in the face of reputable research, create scenarios. And why in the world do we have to have this ridiculously intellectual argument that we never can prove who's right or wrong about are there or aren't there going to be jo more jobs in the future? Why can't we just make a plan in case there's not? And let's all pray we don't need to use the plan, just like we pray the military doesn't have to use a plan about chemical warfare or anything else that, God forbid, would happen in our country, but they are prepared. And when all this reputable research would tell all of us here that there was a storm coming to Washington, D.C., and it was going to flood the entire city. I don't think any of us would come down to Cato and have a debate about whether that's ever happened before. We'd get the hell out of town, or we'd make plans to get through it. And I think that's what the country needs to do. My plan is actually very similar to Charles, not funded the same way, but it's a universal basic income to do two things at the same time. One, end poverty. You know, we still have 15% of the population living in poverty for all the money we're spending. The poverty line is the United States is $11,994 for an individual. Charles says give people $10,000 plus $3,000 in health care. I say give every person $1,000 a month, $12,000 a year. At least statistically, we will end poverty for the first time in the United States. That, that's good. You know, two, you know, we will prepare ourselves for technological change. We will probably fuel a lot of entrepreneurial activity. We will reward women and caregivers who have been at home taking care of children that have never been rewarded before. We will help prisoners who are leaving incarceration get, a, get their feet started. We will solve potentially a lot of different problems by a simple policy. Now, I'll just end by saying what Winston Churchill once said. Universal basic income, you can ask me a lot of questions. It's a terrible policy when you really think about it like democracy, until you try everything else. Because when you try to figure out what could you do in the United States to end poverty, to prepare yourself for a technological revolution, which is not anymore a blue-collar re revolution, it's not anymore like the 
Iraq war when the sons and daughters of poor people is more like the Vietnam War where everybody got drafted. No one is going to avoid this technological revolution. In fact, the highest jobs targeted to be eliminated are accountants, insurance adjusters, and insurance agents because it's all math, and math is now the subject of Watson and algorithms uh, everywhere you go. So we're at a very important time. There's a very big potential of change coming. There's a series of problems in, that we can solve by a simple policy. It's a policy that has lots of different issues and lots of different ways to fund. But if that's universal basic income's not your best idea, then I just want to know what it is, because our kids deserve something better than just hoping that this time isn't different. Well, thank you very much. And uh, let's continue the conversation a little bit. And once again, for folks who are following along uh, on the live stream or on the C-SPAN, uh, they can get involved in this by uh, using Twitter and it's hashtag CatoUBI. Uh, so let me see if I can start off by throwing a few rocks at this Kumbaya <laughs> Yeah, you have here. to because the two of us are just sitting here nodding. <laughs> at each other. That's right. We, we, we need to get a little controversy going. So, so let me suggest that maybe to some degree this sort of meeting of left and right is papering over some of the serious differences that exist in the two groups out there. Uh, on, the, on the sort of right and among libertarians, I uh, hear a lot of what Charles talks about, the idea of replacing the existing social welfare system with this new approach, which certainly from an economic standpoint makes sense. The current system has a host of problems. It doesn't relieve poverty. It's opaque. It treats people who are similarly situated differently depending on their ability to game the system. Uh, it, it's uh, inefficient uh, and incompassionate to the people who have to jump through all the hoops to get the, get the benefits. On the, on the other side, I often hear this as sort of an add-on. Let's keep all the existing social welfare programs and raise taxes on the rich, and we'll just distribute that money. Maybe not $1,000 a month. Maybe we can only afford to get three or $4,000, but we'll just give people more money than they have today. Is that a bridgeable set of differences? My first reaction is that would I rather have Andy's plan than no plan at all. And I guess I have to think about that. <laughs> because, because look, uh, at the very center of what I want to do is restore moral agency that now has been deeply undercut. And let's think in terms of the, the, the stereotypical example, of course, is the kid in the inner city who's never held a job, uh, is, doesn't have a father in the house, and uh, he's not employable by any ordinary standards. And if, 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 uh, if a youngster in that situation, coming into his late teens, sees himself as uh, a pawn, or sees his only route to dignity being gaming the system, or, or going into the underground economy, or whatever, this to me is something that my plan really does something for because the, his future is in his hands in an important way. He is given options he doesn't have before and he is also in a nexus where if he doesn't take advantage of those options that he is uh, told about that in no uncertain terms by the people right around him. And what scares me about an add-on plan is that all of the bad things that we have now about uh, kind of removing moral agency remain in place. And, and here's where I am true to my libertarian beliefs. I think government is deeply implicated in, in, in destroying a lot of the sense of 
of uh, personal responsibility. So I will just say if, if we ever get to the floor of uh, Senate debating competing plans, I will be testifying before House committees saying, don't do what Andy says, replace everything. As far as saying, but is it better than nothing? It's sort of like choosing between Trump and Clinton. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) with that introduction. (laughs) So so what I I just want to take away my extremist view and be a little more nuanced here than I think people might think. So one is, I was a welfare worker. That's how I started my career, working for the state of Pennsylvania. A white suburban person telling women of color about regulations and rules and morality was ridiculous. It was demeaning to them and silly for me, right? So I believe what Martin Luther King said in his last book, From Chaos to Community. We didn't ask for housing vouchers and food stamps. We asked the civil rights movement, that is, to end poverty. And if you want to end poverty, give people money. So I don't believe in keeping all this categorical welfare system. I don't agree also with getting rid of everything, so we can talk about where I draw lines. You know, but I, I do believe you know, that it is better off to give people choice. I guess I'm in Haya call to give people personal responsibility and accept that they will do what they want to, and that's what life is somewhat about, not suburban welfare kids enforcing regulations that some Congress passed in Washington, D.C. 30 years ago, you know, about what your life was going to be like and how it was going to be controlled by an outside entity. So first of all, I don't believe in changing Social Security for the people that have put money into it. I see it much more. I appreciate some of its unfunded nature. But the point is that workers have been paying into Social Security for their lifetime, and they should get money out of it. If you want to make a transition sometime in the future for people who've never paid in, we can start that conversation, but I'm not into taking away what people have counted on their whole life with substituting a completely new system. And I think healthcare is a whole different discussion because we could actually fund all of this if we could get our healthcare spending down anywhere near to what other countries around the world, whether you like Canada's or you like Switzerland, you know, one is a private and one is more public, you know, we pay way too much for healthcare. That's a different discussion. I don't think people can manage it particularly well on their own, but I don't like the healthcare system, you know, that we have. I think there's a lot of improvement. After that, I think almost everything is up for grabs. I don't see why you need EITC or unemployment or food stamps or housing vouchers. If the amount of universal basic income is sufficient, I think, you know, it's just you can't have both at the same time. I happen this might not, you know, get me in good stead with my progressive friends who are wondering what I'm doing here in the first place, but you know, I don't really believe in that there's enough money taxing the rich. I mean, that's not where the money's going to come from. You want to tax assets, now we're talking something different. You want to tax income, you know, we've been through that. You know, we can make some improvements if that's what people want to do and there are things we should pay for, but that is totally not going to work in this particular situation. So, you know, I have a funding plan. We can talk about it later, but it doesn't presume we're building on top. It is more of a there was a full smorgasbord. We're limiting, you know, what are the fixed price, you know, meals like Social Security and Medicare that stay on the table and everything else is kind of, we can rearrange the menu. Well, I got bad news for you, Mike, because now I prefer Andy's plan to the current system. <laughs> 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 because, 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 look, uh, 
I, I absolutely agree about the medical care. I've got a way of dealing with it in my plan, but the main thing I say in the book actually is, if we only had a sensible uh, regulatory system, uh, healthcare costs should have been going down the same way that costs with so many other services have gone down. I mean, routine healthcare that we spend 90% of our doctor's visits on, those costs should have been going down as fast as computer costs have been going down. But it's not for artificial reasons, and there's gotta be a better way, so I will go with a better way. In terms of transition, absolutely right. The way I think of it is, uh, when you enact it, you say to someone, uh, you have a choice. You can stay in the current system, or you can go to the new system. Your choice, and, and it's very interesting to do a calculation. At what age, let's say 45, after you've been contributing to Social Security for a lot of time, but you have the choice between getting the 10K in disposable income or staying on Social Security without getting that, when does it become a better bet for you to switch out of the current system, even though you paid into the current one. So, uh, transition needs to be taken care of. Uh, I agree with the medical, uh, the, the options available for Medicare, so you've got to come up with another source of confidence. <laughs> uh -oh. well, I said, we, we've obviously been talking, talking too long. Well, let me raise another uh, contentious issue on this, and that is the question of work. I think, in general, we prefer people to work rather than to not work for a variety of reasons. One is the dignity in work itself. The second is to contribute to economic growth overall. And the third is if we are redistributing, which means taking money from someone involuntarily and giving it to someone else, we sort of want people to be contributing to their own well-being as part of that, part of that bargain. The, the, what little evidence there has been, and there's very few studies on this, but what little evidence you get from sort of the Manpower Demonstration Resource Project and others suggests that if you do some sort of negative income tax, in the marginal phase-out range, you begin to discourage work. And the alternatives become either to have such a broad phase-out that it becomes very expensive because you're giving it to people well up into the middle class, or you begin to have a very, make it inexpensive and have a very high cliff in which people sort of like a lot of traditional welfare programs, you sort of drop off the edge and you have a high marginal tax rate on going to work. Do you, does either of you in your plans wrestle with that problem and how do you get people to continue to work? Uh, the, the way I do it in uh, my plan is to have a high point at which you start to pay back any amount of the grant. So in my plan, you uh, until you make $30,000 in personal income, my cell phone isn't turned off, um, until you make $30,000 in disposable uh, personal income, you keep the entire 10K. And once you get beyond that, you start to uh, pay a clawback uh, modestly. But the point is this, if once you get to 30,000, that plus the 10,000 gives you income of 40,000. The number of people who say, I'm gonna drop out at that point is very small. And, and I would argue that the costs are manageable and I go through the numbers uh, in that book. That, that's the way I deal with it. Andy? So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different, you know, moral philosophy and other questions attached to all of this. So the one job we could use more of in America is philosophers, because we talked <laughs> about Maslow's need hierarchy. Yeah. And now we have the potential to actually get closer to that because of technology and all the things that are becoming cheap and when we get cheaper. And yet, I don't think work was at the top of Maslow's hierarchy, economic work. I think lots of other kinds of values come in, but I think it's a discussion about how much choice do libertarians want to give people, right, about what you make them or don't make them 
do. So if someone wants to live on what I'm saying is a very minuscule amount of money, $12,000 a year, and I don't know, they play video games, I, these are everyone's worst fears, or they do drugs, as opposed to they take care of a child, they take care of their mother, they coach Little League, they sell things on Etsy. I mean, there are lots of things that people can do you know, when they're not working full-time. So I tend to think of this more as a supplement to work, not a substitute for work, because I still think there will be work, a lot less hours potentially, a lot more things we might define uh, differently. And two is, I happen to maybe got uh, you know, bit by the bug, but believe in the end we give people the money and we let them make choices of what they do in their life, and why do we get to make work a value that we place on everyone as a responsibility? You know, one of the interesting issues in this, uh, Andy, if you try to look ahead to it, here's my own guess. Mm -hmm. With women, there will be very little problem, and with guys, there may be. Mm -hmm. Which is to say that there are lots of women out there who have gone into the labor force, um, some of them enthusiastically because they wanted to, and that's great. Lots of women would rather be doing full-time work at home as taking care of the kids and also be engaged in the community. And they uh, can't afford to do it, and this will make it possible for them to do things that women historically have done extremely effectively. And I think it is more males than, than females who have been socialized into thinking that the dignity of a job, and that there is dignity associated with with a job is defined in terms of going to work for 40 hours a week. And uh, and I would only just say, I think that's a generation, I mean, clearly generation Donald thing. Trump would agree with you on that about women, but I would say, <laughs> I would say, you know, that work has become very different for like my, I have half sisters who are, you know, in their 30s, now 40s. You know, I, I think they grew up expecting to work, right? you know, have families, work mm -hmm. at the same time. So, I, I'm, you know, I don't know how that's all going to work. I do think people will make different choices. And it, again, to just take advantage of being in a libertarian hall, hallmark, place, you know, choices seems to be what people say. So you can't say we want to give people choice and then tell them they have to work. Well, let me, let me mm -hmm. pick up on that with the last question here before we go to the audience. And, and something in the area that we kind of I think agree on to some degree on this, which is this personal autonomy uh, uh, idea. The current social welfare seems to me to be very paternalistic. I mean, it, it has all sorts of regulations. If you want this, you have to do that. Uh, and we see this push both uh, in terms of the left and the right on this, where uh, you get more benefits if you go, send your kid goes to school or we'll pay you for more for this. But I've also seen it on the left talking about, well, there's people who just can't handle things and therefore we need to decide how much they pay for housing versus how much they spend on education and so on. This would certainly move in a very different direction. But do you see pushback from both sides on this with an, the idea that there are basically people who can't or shouldn't run their own lives and therefore it's the government's job to run it for them? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I think that... I've already heard that kind of argument made against, by people on both sides of the fence. I guess one response to that is, we are not talking about a future world that is worse than this one. Right this minute, we have the, the numbers on young males that are out of the labor force altogether are really scary, and the increases in them are really scary. Women's labor force participation has also been falling. 
Uh, we have, we have a, a variety of people who are living lives right now of the kinds that people on both sides would say, look at these people are throwing away their lives. My own view, turn it over to Andy for his, is, well, pretty much what he just said. People make choices and the downsides of trying to stage manage those choices have been made clear by a lot of public policies over the last 30, 40 years. So one is there are people who don't do well managing their own affairs. You know, people who have dementia, people who have mental health issues, people who have drug problems. And I assume we'll always have agencies and communities and churches and families who will try to intervene in those situations. And we should make sure we have resources available because when you have a mental health problem, just having money is really not going to solve no, no. your problems and, you know, prescriptions and other kinds of counseling, you know, are necessary. But yeah, there could be people who make bad decisions. And, you know, after we take care of the people who have a physical, emotional, or, you know, other needs that need to be met uniquely, you know, I think we just have to accept that that's what happens in the world and we do the best we can. And that's what your community, friends, family try to do. Stop you, tell you to stop drinking, tell you to stop fooling around, do whatever else you're doing with money or gambling or whatever. And just gonna have to let it be. Well, that's great, and I, and I do think, I think ultimately you can't expect people to be moral agents if you don't give them any responsibility. I mean, they become puppets, and that's not what people are all about. Uh, I'm going to move to the audience now and see if you folks uh, have any questions. Oh. I see a wow, suddenly <laughs> hands shooting up here. Uh, I would ask that you wait till you get to the microphone, then identify yourself and any organization that you represent. Uh, and uh, please ask questions. We, you know, I will cut you off if you start to give a speech. Uh, and finally, once again, for folks following along, the hashtag here on Twitter is, is hashtag CatoUBI. So let's go to the audience first off, and I'm going to start in the middle, and then I'll move left and right. So start right there, gentlemen, in the blue shirt, and then you're next. Good afternoon. Uh, Dan O'Sullivan from Basic Income Action. We spent the last year pushing the presidential candidates to support basic income. In January, we'll have a new president. We'll also have a new Congress. What do you think the chances are of getting some kind of basic income legislation introduced? So I think the chances of getting something introduced are probably easy. The chances of it being a serious discussion right now are pretty uh, complicated. You know, I think, I happen to believe that the most influential person on the next United States president, if it's Hillary Clinton, will be Justin Trudeau. You know, I think Justin Trudeau in Canada is seen as kind of a, a new thinker about new problems. And he's done a children's basic income. He's talking about doing experiments in Ontario and Quebec on basic income. You know, I think what we need is experimentation. You know, I don't think anybody knows the consequences or the unintended consequences. We did five in the United States when Milton Friedman was around. We really never did the analysis of exactly what happened. So I think you know, we're seeing a lot of activity up in Canada. I think that will have a lot of influence on the American policy makers. And I think we may not see a bill, but I think we'll see a discussion begin about could we do some experiments. Now, let, let me suggest I think it would be premature for legislation at this point for exactly the reasons. I think there's a lot of research that remains to be done uh, before we decide whether, that, whether or not this is a good idea. This is still basic ideas uh, being discussed and uh, the details would, would right. really matter 
Uh, as you see, there's already some disagreements, and uh, so I, I think it's a long way from, from legislation. And we've seen too often the consequences of legislation uh, that we was rushed through and kind of designed to get you know, 51 votes in the Senate uh, and uh, rather than to be actually workable. This is going to be a big deal if it's done right. right. It's going to be a huge deal, and if we just try to do it piecemeal, it's going to be a mess. Okay. Uh, Orange shirt. Uh, microphone, someone? Yeah, here comes. Thank you very much. I'm Mitzi Worth. I'm with the Naval Postgraduate School. I didn't go to graduate school myself. <laughs> um, I've been thinking about this whole question of dignity and work and supporting oneself. And what I'm aware of, and I was, uh, my question is if you give people money, do you give them a sense of responsibility to community at the same time? And, and I bring this up because an Egyptian friend of mine who works on terrorism said, you just don't understand about terrorism. If you have young men that have no prospects and someone gives them $2,000 a month, a truck and a gun, and a purpose in life, of course they're going to become terrorists. And my question is, how do you give, while you do this, how do you give them a sense of they're important, <laughs> they're respected, they're making a contribution, not just giving them money. And then I have a lot of other things I'd like to ask people. <laughs> I'll give you a chance to ask those others privately <laughs> later on, but let's, that's, a very, that's a good question. Well, first, my hypothetical is not a potential terrorist, okay? I'm thinking more, ordin more ordinary guy living in a low-income community, and I... Yeah, and, and, and I'm, I guess I will not go through my, my spiel again. I think that the people around him are going to be giving him cues about what is and is not the kind of thing that constitutes appropriate behavior. I mean, think, think of it this way. In 1960, if you were a guy of working age who was not completely disabled and you weren't even looking for work, you were considered a bum. Uh, and that's the word that was used and was used by everybody around you. And labor force participation in 1960 was clear up close, in, close to 100% among, among young um, working aged males. Well, I think that with a universal basic income, it's my argument, I can't prove it. I think you reintroduce the freedom of people to make those kinds of moral comparisons again, so that it has been out of fashion to call guys who are out of the labor force bums uh, in many, many circles in this country. When you have a universal basic income, all at once I think it becomes easier to say, you know what, you really ought to uh, be taking care of your children if you have sired children. You are, really ought to be taking care of, of, of other people close to you, and these will be moral signals that flourish again, which I'm in favor of. All right, uh, up in the back, dark blue shirt. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, I'd like if you could spend a little time talking about how you would finance this program, given three things. Uh, so Charles, if you get rid of Social Security and Medicare, presumably that means you get rid of the payroll tax. So that's 15.3% of income. That's not coming in as revenue you have to make up. Andy, if you add on, then you've got to still fund Social Security and Medicare. Both programs are underfunded right now and going insolvent in 15 years. How do you make that up? 
And then for both of you, if you're right, and we do see a big decline in jobs, that means less revenue coming in from payroll tax and income tax. How do we make that up and still afford universal basic income? Thank you. Uh, real quickly, my own plan uh, assumes that the tax code is revenue neutral in, I don't know what happens to the payroll tax, but uh, I'm assuming the revenue from the payroll tax continues. And if the, uh, that may mean that it has to be transferred into other kinds of taxes. So it's revenue neutral. I'm, I'm assuming the revenue that we have now. And we have crossed over the line. We did about 2010, 2009. We crossed the line between the cost of the present system and the cost of the system as I uh, worked it out. And right now, we are several hundred billion dollars less expensive than the current system. And by the early 2000s, we're over a trillion dollars less expensive. I grant you the problems that you mentioned in the question. You know, if jobs are disappearing, what, what, is that, what are the implications for revenue? I guess the short answer is Replacing the current system is a lot more economically realistic in terms of costs projected into the future than the current entitlement situation where we are looking at horrific rising deficits uh, into the indefinite future. So in my book, I spend a lot of time trying to answer this question. And I want to say, for the record, it needs more research, not on how to pay for it, but how much it actually costs, because there's so many factors about what it does. Is it dynamic scoring? Is, you know, what is, so I, I estimate the cost of $1.75 trillion. I do 18 to 64. I don't do kids. I don't do people on Social Security unless they make less than $1,000 a month. I top up their Social Security. Uh, I don't do undocumented workers, only citizens. So that's how I get to my cost. I'd say there's five to six hundred billion dollars out of the trillion dollars in the current welfare system that we should allocate. I say there's five hundred to six hundred billion dollars out of the one point three trillion dollars of tax expenditures, which are tax breaks, you know, paid for instead of uh, paying taxes, we're paying people back, you know. So I think there's another five or six hundred billion. You know, this is my simple way of doing it because I'm not a revenue neutral person. You know, the financial transaction tax, we had one for 50 years in this country. We got rid of it. The rest of Europe is reestablishing it. There's probably $200 billion there. I'm ready to do a VAT tax. We're the only industrial country in the world that doesn't have a VAT tax or a carbon tax or an asset tax. You name it, there's plenty of other ones that could do it. I'm not an income tax person. Uh, sure. Right there. And then we'll get you next, sir. Hi, I'm Phil Harvey, a co-author of The Human Cost of Welfare. Um, delighted, to, uh, delighted to be here. We have a population now that Charles has described very, very well in uh, Coming Apart that is very much, it seems to me, like the population of disaffected males that could very well expand under a UBI, and I'd like uh, both of you to comment on that. We have about 7 million uh, prime working age males, and I certainly agree with Charles, this is more a male problem than a female problem, uh, who are not seeking work, uh, are not disabled, are not uh, engaged in educational pursuits, are not in jail, and they are not 
all poor. A great many of them uh, are living in households that reflect uh, economic conditions of the fourth rather than the fifth uh, economic quintile. And they are not, Charles, contributing, as you yourself have described, to community improvement, to community engagement. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering how giving those same people and others like them uh, $10,000 a year is going to get them to stop watching television and go to church because it seems to me it's highly unlikely. Well, here I'm in the position of giving scenarios. Let me give you a couple of scenarios. One is that um, these guys that you described, that I described, are also fathering a whole lot of children that they aren't caring for. And under the UBI, guess what? All the woman has to do is to establish paternity, which is very, very simple in today's, uh, given today's technology. And you don't have any place to hide if you're a male because the judge simply grants child support and that money is taken out of that deposit before you ever get your hands on it. Do you think it just might have um, effect on other young males when they see the fact that their older brothers who have sired children are, are having to pay for them. I think it's going to have a big effect. Let me give you another example. Right now, you have all sorts of cohabitation going on, uh, a lot of times living off the income streams that the woman has. And the guys are playing video games and doing all the things we're talking about. Right now, the woman really can't do much to get the guy to uh, support things. She can't make him get a job. She can't do this, that, and the other thing. All at once, if he's got uh, a deposit every month, the pressure's on him to uh, start ponying up or get out change a lot, and that can have positive effects on expectations. I, I'm just going to repeat myself, and, and I don't want to, I'm not presenting this as evidence. I have grappled with this problem of what do you do with this population in my own mind, and I'm saying what I want to do is to put that young man back in a position where things are expected of him and where he has to acknowledge that things can be expected of him. And in my, in my view, this is a lot better than the current system. Before, just before I pass yes, this on, on to you, I just want to, maybe you can follow up on this as well. There, there does seem, at least in some of the questions, at least this, a, a, a blame the poor attitude here, which, I mean, certainly this, there's a lot of social pathologies among the poor, but we also have to take into account the fact that you have a school system that doesn't educate, a difficulty in creating jobs in certain areas, uh, a criminal justice system that leaves people virtually unhirable because of criminal records, a history of racism and, and gender-based discrimination and so on, all of which has to be included in that, in that model as well. So, I mean, you have to deal with the social pathologies that are out there. Uh, but, I, but I think it's also to have to be careful in terms of, of assigning the blame on that. So I'm assigning no blame to anybody in what I'm thinking about. I'm assigning this problem. There is not enough work for people who want to work to make enough money to live the kind of life that my father, my grandfather, the auto workers, and everybody lived. And it is going to get worse. So whatever the situation is now, it is going to get worse. Now, the answer to all of this, obviously, is to make people work. 
And I keep saying, if the libertarians want to have a forced work national Humphrey Hawkins program, bring it on, baby. You know, because that's the other answer to the work situation. If there are not enough jobs in the private market is creating, then the public market, if we want to believe in work, has to create it. So I'm not trying to deal with moral issues. I'm trying to deal with a very practical one. Labor force participation is down, not I think because people are sitting home playing video games, although there are certainly people who are, is because there's less decent jobs available. People are living at home more, even in middle class families, because there's not decent jobs available. And the last thing I'll say to any of you who, like me who is middle class, I want to know how many of you are doing parental basic income. Okay, how many of you are taking your kids on vacation, helping them with a bill if they get it, helping stabilize their life, create a floor for them? Because lots of my friends are doing something to help their kids get by who are working, doing the best they can, and not making enough to live the life that their parents did. And that's what we do because we have the ability to do it. I'm just saying, could we like create a floor for everybody besides the fact we do probably increase entrepreneurship and do other things? You know, and I'm not trying to make moral judgments, but there is an economic question and a values question. And we don't have the answer to the values question of what are people going to do when there is far less labor needed to produce the goods to meet the basic needs that Maslow talked about. And we should start thinking about that because money is one thing, work is another. Someone got the third, fourth, and fifth, I'm all for it because, you know, it is a it is a complicated question. The last thing I want to say is it's a question for people under 30 to answer because people who grew up and love their work, love their job, would have worked 90 hours no matter what they paid, you know, cannot really make judgments for people who haven't had the same kind of opportunity because those jobs you know, aren't there. All you had to do when I grew up was go to college or get a union job. You were fine in America. That is not true. Either one is not true right now. Yeah, and I, before, go take one last question, and then we're out of time. And yeah, you'll you'll get it. I just I just want to want to say, by the way, if anyone hasn't read Phil's book, uh, the the Human Cost of Welfare, it's a terrific book. And, and I, while I'm pushing books up here, <laughs> let me just throw that in as well. And I don't mean to to imply that uh, that Phil was blaming the poor. This is kind of a general kind of thought process out there in this. Uh, last last one. Yes, Pete Kurtzenhauser. I'm from Great Falls, Virginia. I'm a Cato benefactor. And uh, normally, my, my main question and uh, concern is, what are the unintended consequences? Normally, when Cato does one of these, you have somebody who is taking an opposite position and saying, well, here's what's wrong with these proposals. In order to make them work, you would have to do something else. But since we don't have that, and you're the moderator, Mike, right. I would like for each of you to anticipate what some of the unintended consequences are of the other's plan. Because I tell you, I can see a whole lot of them, but I'm not here, to, I'm not on the stage to talk about them. So please tease those things out, because I am sure that there are, that there will be a whole new raft of problems that will come along, not just the obvious ones that you're thinking of. So well, have sure. at it. Well, let me, let me, my role as skeptic here, because I am, I, I always I describe myself as sympathetic to this idea, but skeptical of it. Let, let me throw out my big, one of my skepticisms, which is that is the sort of political economy or the moral hazard problem here of uh, once we've sort of established the idea that people have a right to a certain level of income as sort of a basic guaranteed right, the, the competition begins for I'm more compassionate and you want $10,000, $13,000, you want $12,000. Hey, I'm a lot more compassionate than you. I think it should be $15,000. You know, you know what? You know, Hillary says 20 and Trump says 25 and it, you know, the, the bidding war goes up and, uh, and before we know it, we're broke. <laughs> this one I'm, I'm confident I have the answer to. 
famous last words. Right now, right now, we can have creep in all kinds of these programs because none of these programs is such a big political issue that you mobilize a lot of uh, attention on it, and so just things, things happen. If we have a basic guaranteed income of this kind, changes in that number are going to be a huge deal politically. And it's not the case that you can get away with saying, oh, let's just jack it up a thousand bucks. You are going to have very well-funded, very vocal people saying, that's crazy, you can't do it. And I think that uh, keeping, keeping the costs in check with a consolidated system like that, whether it's Andy's or mine, would be a whole lot easier than trying to get the umpteenth new job program from being enacted that nobody even knows is happening. And why don't you take a shot at the critique yourself. What, what's the, what do you think is the most valid criticism of your proposal? The most valid uh, criticism is, I think, that it's not that the basic income would uh, be increased radically, but that even if you replace the system, as I want to do, that I want a constitutional amendment saying no other transfer payments, <laughs> and uh, but that's not realistic. And so what would happen is the, the the welfare system would gradually be rebuilt. I think that's politically speaking, that's a very real danger. Andy, so I totally worry about the issue of work and what happens in a society when there isn't enough work or people don't work. I don't think it. We know how to live a life where there isn't work attached to it, whether it was working on a farm or working in a factory. And so, you know, I think we have to confront that problem regardless of my plan. One way to confront it is to give people work, you know, which is a way to solve that problem, and we should decide about that. But I, I, I don't really understand what life is going to be like when there's not enough work for people to do. And I watch lots of people, you know, who don't seem to be worried about it in their 20s right now who seem to do just fine in a different way than I would have chosen to do. So I'm also worried about trying to have a generation like mine place moral values on another generation about what they do with their time and their money. All right, well, we thank you once again for coming on out. Uh, we do have a uh, meal, for lunch for you upstairs in the Jaeger Conference Center if you want to go upstairs uh, to have some lunch. Uh, we have books from both these gentlemen on sale right outside here. Uh, they may, you may even be able to talk them into to signing <laughs> them uh, for you. Uh, so we appreciate you coming out very much. Once again, this is Mike Tanner with the Cato Institute from the FAA Hayek Auditorium. Thank you all.